0: Hello and welcome back to the Authentic Artistry Podcast with me Kitty Bazalgette as your host. This is the podcast in which we explore what it means to find authenticity as a performer. How do we find it? How do we express it on stage? And to try and answer just some of those questions that it throws up for yourself in the process. All of the things that don't quite fit into a minute and a half video on Instagram before we get started today I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying the podcast and these conversations then you can give us a rating or review on your podcast platform and that is super helpful for getting this podcast listened to by many more wonderful creatives. Now grab yourself a cup of something and let's get into the podcast. My guest today, originally from Seattle and now living in Paris, is someone who wants to change the conversation about practicing and performing for professional and pre-professional musicians and bringing the nervous system regulation to the general public. She is a neurodivergent, recovering perfectionist and active violist based in Paris, France. She's a former Division One scholarship rower with multiple autoimmune challenges, titanium plates, screws, and a passion for holding space for people to find and feel their awesomeness. Sarah from Spark Practice, welcome to the Authentic Artistry podcast. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Likewise, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. I always start with with these five questions. Sometimes they go on a bit longer than than I had originally <laughs> intended. Um but the first question is what does authentic artistry mean to you?
1: Well, authentic artistry to me, well obviously I think of you. So, done and dusted. Also, I'm really into helping people find their sort of resonant authenticity and as you mentioned i've been bumped and bruised quite a bit (laughs) so really kind of getting to that space where um understanding what authenticity is and how we can have this like resonant authenticity for me it's really being unblocked as much as possible centered as much as possible and being courageous uh in inviting people into your artistic world
0: yes totally i think that's the invitation can only come when when you are unblocked and centered and because then you feel able to share what's what's in here with with others.
1: That's so funny. The whole idea that we can't criticize and create at the same time, it's just that it's a neurological thing. But also that we need to feel safe. And there's so much in the world that we don't feel safe, but when we can find that safety in ourselves, then that invitation is so much easier and we can respond to the invitation from the outside as well.
0: Something I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of years is about how it's partly our responsibility as musicians but also our teachers' responsibilities within the conservatory to start co-creating this sense of safety and I don't think it happens often enough and I don't think we as the musicians or the teachers always realize how important it is to facilitate and create that space.
1: You're so right. Just the awareness that there's stuff there is a great first step. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, having this sort of tool to be able to break the cycle with institutional memory and, and, you know, most of our teachers didn't know any of this stuff anyway, like, Mm. We're in a really unique space to have all of these tools and to be able to have this conversation and change everything. And, you know, as teachers and all of that, we have a unique challenge as well because we're creating that future for ourselves. And then we're deciding what's... We now know that we have the agency, agency to decide what gets transferred to the next generations.
0: Totally. What are three qualities or capabilities in other musicians or creatives that inspire you? So during this conversation, you'll see very clearly
1: that I love systems and I love like having very concise and I'm I'm so cheesy. I love acronyms and alliterations and stuff like that. So that's just part of my like happy ADHD functioning strategies. But um, when you asked me this question, I was thinking, oh, well, This is exactly what we talk about with the three zones of excellence, which are mental, musical, and mechanical. Because for me, I I started asking the question, like, I don't understand why things aren't working on stage. I don't understand all this stuff. Like, in rowing, we had all this, like, coaching and accompaniment and all of that. And in music, it's totally not like that. It's survivor. I don't get it. And so I asked myself, like, what makes a great performance? Which is basically the question that you're asking me. Mm. And I was like, man, okay, it's something with an incredible musical conversation that is responsible for the attention and holds the space for that, with the technical capacity to be able to realize that, like, we have our three zones of excellence, because I am American and I'm cheesy, but, um, you know, then, like, we're thinking, well, the what shows up on stage is so much more than just like technique or something like that. But for me, it's really like you you can shine and show off your in- entire capacity when you know kind of what these are. And so I'd say I love it when people can shine as themselves and bring their whole capacity to stage. I also love it when people are passionate and intentional. And it's the kind of thing where if you bring that sort of passion and intention through and let them shine through these different areas it could be whatever I could watch somebody vacuum (laughs) but it's so beautiful it's so incredible and to see these things just sparkle for lack of a better word and and course through somebody else it's it's magnetic
0: we get pulled in when we see someone doing something that matters to them and do it do
1: it in a, in this sort of like intentional way that that shines through these different areas of like you know having something to say even if it's just I'm doing this for myself but this is important mm. they're expressing something they are doing it in a way that holds the attention because then when you know when somebody's on stage there's also a responsibility to the audience and with the audience and then to be able to, you know, it's it's nice to know how to hold a vacuum, if that's the example. <laughs> you know, and turn it on and turn it off.
0: What's the best technique for vacuuming?
1: <laughs> I have no idea. It's not totally my zone of excellence, but uh, <laughs> my area of expertise, you know, but like, I don't know how to play a clarinet. I'm incredibly musical and I can absolutely take up space on stage or not. I can also support, but give me a clarinet
0: and I'm going to be like, well... <laughs>
1: Have a great show, everybody. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I love that. I think I think it's something that like, we all can appreciate great performance. I think it is when someone is being intentional about what they're doing, when they're passionate about it. And I think that's why musical performance, artistic performance, and sports performance have so much in common, because we both, in both worlds, we want to be... We want to be deliberate about what we're doing because there's there's a huge focus and purpose behind the the thing it, that you're doing in that moment.
1: Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you bring up the word deliberate too because, you know, Spark Practice is the intentional practice system. It's not the deliberate practice system for a, re- for a very important reason. For me, being deliberate about something is the what. You identify the what and you identify specific stuff to, to meet that what. And I think that's super important. But with intention, not only do you have the what, but you also have the why. And so you're really like pointing your boat in a, in a longer direction. And so everything that you do, like when I was doing strategic planning in, in arts organizations, because I took a break from, from music and did arts administration. But when I was doing strategic planning retreats, you know, you start with the vision, the mission, goals, objectives, action, you know, all of the mission, goals, objectives, strategy, action, <laughs> strategy, action, and then evaluation. And so everything you're doing on the day-to-day links back up to that overarching intention. So I love that because then, you know, in our daily lives, all of our little decisions come
0: from somewhere I think that's also something that is so important to help musicians keep going and and not lose their way with being in this career because it can be a difficult career. But I think having the why, having the intention, the kind of action, the focus, it it keeps you on 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 the path towards that. We need a
1: way. We need a way to get from where we are now to where we want to be that doesn't that isn't a character judgment that doesn't put our worth as a person in question
0: mm.
1: we need a way that's and we we have the tools we have the technology we can build. we we're we have more and more of these tools to be able to have a conversation that's constructive that's towards musical excellence but healthy musical excellence and you know it it'll come up a bit later, and I'll but I'll say it now too. Like there is a way to be totally badass and nice to yourself.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Before I wander off too far from from these questions, the next question: What was the last concert that you went to? Um, I went to a rock show in a houseboat last night. Oh, super fun!
1: Yeah, it was great. It's a band called Final Threat. It was their first uh, show in
0: public. And it was wonderful. I look forward to going back. Oh my God, I love that. I love <laughs> a, a, a party, a concert on a boat. I don't think there's anything better. Come to Paris. We'll hang out. If you could have dinner with any musician, performer or artist throughout history, so contemporary, current, living or or dead, who would it be and why?
1: Uh, so I thought about this question a lot. It stayed with me and did not leave. And I was trying to figure out an answer that was like oh neat or something like that but the person that kept coming back to me is Mr. Eisenberg who is my violin teacher in high school and he was one of the best people in the entire world and uh, one of the founding members of the Philadelphia String Quartet that lived down the street from me and so the only reason that I ever got connected with this guy is because one of my friends from middle school took lessons from him and I just tagged along with her one day and he's like yeah i'll teach you whatever and it turns out that he's like this violent reference (laughs) his stand partner in uh youth orchestra was dorothy delay who was one of the major string goddesses of american string education and she was the teacher at juilliard and then it turns out that later my teacher in conservatory was dorothy delay's teaching assistant so like the world makes sense again, but Mr. Eisenberg was just the coolest, nicest person. And during that time, I I didn't take music very seriously. I enjoyed it, but I didn't know. And the reason that he would be my, my lunch date is that like, I feel like I'm finally ready to learn from him. And he gave me so much when I was so young that I just had no idea and was going through so much other stuff like I just I had no idea how to uh, appreciate it and I got so much out of him and out of our relationship anyway but now I'm like oh my
0: gosh (laughs) all the stuff I'm ready (laughs) but he's gone he's been he's he passed a couple years ago I think there's so many things like from teachers that we have when when we're young that we don't realize just how kind of much gold dust there is, yeah. until we get to a space ourselves when we're also ready to, in like incorporate it and and have the capacity to look deeper into it as well. Oh, that's beautiful.
1: He was so cool, and with the Philadelphia String Quartet, I love this story, and I'm just going to take a couple seconds to tell it because I, I think it's one of those great classical music stories that should just live forever, but. So everybody in the Philadelphia String Quartet was part of the Philadelphia Orchestra, you know, major American orchestra, all of that. And the University of Washington in Seattle recruited the String Quartet to be the quartet in residence at the University of Washington. So the quartet packed their bags from Philadelphia and moved to Seattle to be the quartet in residence in Seattle, and the Philadelphia Orchestra was so ticked off by this, they sued the University of Washington for taking four of their best players.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, that's my teacher. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And did the did the did the University of Washington get get sued? They did get sued, and they wow. I mean, like tough cookies. I don't know. Wow! Wow!
1: Yeah. And so then the string quartet, the Philadelphia String Quartet, was one of the first American quartets to go on tour in India and in China and you know, all over the world. And so all over Mr. Eisenberg's house. And of course he was like, call me Irv. And I'm like, okay, Mr. Eisenberg, you know. (laughs) All over his house, there's stuff from his travels from, you know, people that he met and not only just like the, the fancy dignitaries, whatever but just the people who loved what this quartet did. And this quartet is so amazing. And it, you know, part of my like, growth as a person and as a musician was understanding differently what happened during my childhood and understanding that actually like I, I had this incredible musical context with you know, my, my high school and even my middle school and it was just public schools, but sometimes you get those like sweet spots. And the Philadelphia String Quartet, I don't know if they still do it, but the, the library of their music with all of the fingerings and bowings and everything is still around. And so when I was growing up and in high school, a couple times a year, one of the violinists, one of the, because the, the daughter of, I think the violist replaced a violinist when you retired, would put the entire quartet library in her garage. She would invite all of the local string player kids and we would spend all night sight reading their music
0: all throughout the house. That's so beautiful.
1: It was so bonkers. And the, I mean, these people are like, now, you know, some of these people have Grammys and one of them's an eighth Blackbird, and people are in orchestras around the world. And it's it's so incredible because you just think, like, in high school, we were totally geeking out, like, what losers to go to this lady's house to be like, oh my God, let's play Bardock you know, at three in the morning (laughs) and everybody brings like some cookies or something and puts them in the kitchen and you grab a couple people and a score and you run to whatever room somewhere in the
0: house. And, and there you go. There's music coming out of everywhere. It was amazing. What a great midnight feast, cookies and and music. I love it. But final question, how would you describe your music or work to someone who's never met you before?
1: So I try to help people understand that it is totally possible to be badass and nice to yourself. And my somebody came by and repaired something in the kitchen. He's like, "Oh, you teach confidence
0: and how to trust yourself." I think that's probably a better way to put it. Well, I think it's two two different ways of saying similar things. True story. Thank you. I like the I like the badass and and being nice to yourself. I think I think it resonates to musicians a lot because there's like a desire to be badass but there's a conditioned belief that you have to be nasty to yourself to do it
1: yeah it's like you can be badass and not black swan you know is the other way to put that
0: yeah right we tend to glorify this this way of being as like the only way to get to the top so that happens in a lot of different
1: ways but like spark practice really came out of this question of like what makes an excellent performance and sort of reworking it from the inside So that, again, we're having a, it's a framework to have a conversation towards musical objectives. So that self-judgment and all of those things of, oh, you don't know how to do this? Well, you're a piece of crap. Doesn't fly anymore. We don't do that anymore. There's no space for that. And it's not helpful. So, hmm. And then what I realized in part of that and doing the artist's way, because I run the artist's way Paris group, is that most people don't know how to regulate their nervous system. And so that's one of the essential elements of
0: performance and just being human. That segues quite nicely into, could you tell a bit about what is Spark Practice and how did it come into being? Yes.
1: Okay, so Spark Practice is, again, a framework of how to practice so that you're showing up as your best self on stage in, from a place of neurological security. And my th- whole thing is like how to work in an aligned way towards he- healthy musical excellence. And for me of this question of what makes an excellent performance, which is like, you know, the musical conversation that's engaging, the stage presence that's, that's really interesting and compelling and the technical capacity to be able to express it. We have our three zones of excellence, mental, musical, and mechanical, which means that the, the technical part of what we're doing is only a third of what shows up on stage. Mm. But are we spending a third of our time in the practice room thinking about you know the story that we're telling? Do we spend a third of the time in the practice room working on our mental skills? Not yet. So <laughs> I wanted to figure out a way to bring those together. And because I'm very cheesy and love acronyms, I was like, okay, well, there's got to be a way to, to further this conversation. And I had heard, you know, oh, rhythm, intonation, and sound quality. And even hearing that the first time, I was like, oh, my gosh, that changed everything. I wasn't just throwing spaghetti blindly. It was like, oh, I can throw it that way and that way and that way. But it didn't incorporate these other elements of performance. And so with spark practice, the whole idea is that every practice session we're taking a tour through the five pillars of music making, which are spark. So S is sound. This is your voice. This is like your characters. It's also sound production, but that's the technical element. That's the mechanical element of sound because each in, in each of these pillars you have mental, musical, and mechanical, right? So the sound is really your conception of the sound, your voice. P is performance, which is, both mental skills and what I call your digestive system of stress, because it's something we have to practice. You know, like switching from practice brain to performance brain, criticizing and creating. they can both be really positive experiences, but when you get on stage, you want to be in performance brain and have practiced keeping the door shut to having head junk come in and and you know be in that space. and it's just like a muscle. We just have to practice it, but you have specific strategies to practice it. Um, A is attuned intonation. So when we're attuned to something, it's the whole context. It's like we're playing the same music. So this is also the harmonic context, but it's, are we listening? Am I the most important voice? Am I an accompanying voice? What is my texture and what I'm trying to do need to be able to make the whole thing sparkle? R uh, is rhythm. And rhythm for me is the groove, it's the phrasing, it's the structure, like a symphony in four movements is a four part rhythmic adventure. But do we think about it like that?
0: No, (laughs) not
1: yet, you know, but that's what makes it so cool is like, you know, rhythm can be expressed so many different ways, but to leave it just at a a notation system is totally ignoring the point. Mm. Like what's the groove, what's the music? How do we punctuate time? And then K is kinetic integration. So bringing it all together, like grouping different movements, blocking. Blocking is the process of our brain putting different movements together and being like, oh, this is a unit. So, like learning to read, it used to just be a bunch of squiggles. And then it went to like a squiggle is a letter. Letters put together mean words. Words have meaning. And now we look at a word and it has meaning. That's blocking. But there's a, the, 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 Major secret ingredient of that is that with kinetic integration, not only are we putting the movements together and our intention of driving it, but we're also being really careful about the story we tell ourselves. Because when we're practicing, that's when we need to be building everything together and saying like, oh yeah, and in this part, there's a happy tree and all of that and relax and open up, you know, not necessarily relax, but open up, give yourself that positive direction and also cultivate that like very nice conversation you're having with yourself.
0: I guess it's learning about mastery. It's learning about mastering your instrument. And I think it was something that actually came up yesterday in in a lesson that I gave in the conservatory. We were talking about like how there's this mystery around how top performers perform, like that this mystery is kind of glorified and gatekept in a way but actually yeah people like you also what I try to do is to to break it down into something that is actually accessible for people that people that it's not just oh well they were a prodigy or they're just gifted no it's actually something that can be learned and I I, what you said about I think it was about the learning to go from the practice to to performance like it's a muscle and so, so many of these, I hate this, but soft skills are muscles. Um, I don't think they are soft skills. I think they are vitally important skills. Well, I mean, think about it this way. Your muscles and tendons and
1: all of your soft tissue is also important, as important as your bones. Mm. So we'll just take the words and put them in a different system that shows us how clearly this is important. Yeah. If you were only bones, you would not be a person. <laughs> If you're only hard
0: skills, you wouldn't be a person. And musicians know that if they practice, they will get better at something. But there's so, so often I encounter this, that there's so much less willing to practice the the the, like mental side like the the talking nicely to yourself that's a skill that's takes practice and it's I find it so funny because it's like these people who are experts at 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 practicing something on their instrument but when it comes to practicing something that is like being nice to yourself it's like oh no I can't do that
1: (laughs) right well and also these okay so first of all being yourself takes practice and. Becoming the person you want to be, all we do is we aim to incorporate a tiny bit of that ideal person's average day into our lives. That's it. We take maybe one way that they would handle the situation, one way that they would approach uh, a piece, one way that they would talk to themselves or somebody else, and incorporate that into our daily life. And then eventually, we we look around and we're like, "Oh, holy crap! I am that person," you know. <laughs> But all we're looking is we're aiming for the average of that excellence. Not the best of that, because even they can't do that. A race car cannot go at full race speed all the time.
0: I can't remember whether it was from Atomic Habits or from Grit. Like the excellence is a buildup of kind of average tasks, but over a long period of time. And again, it takes away this kind of mystery of, oh my gosh, how did they get to the top? But it it, when you think about it it that is that is how people get get to the top of the games for some people maybe they've been doing it since they were three years old so they're going to be there maybe by the time they're 25 and for other people they started when they were 10 or 12 so maybe it takes a few years longer but I think people forget that it's not about being 100% all the time yeah no you're so right
1: And so a couple, like, my brain is just like, whoa, (laughs) so many things to talk about. It's amazing. I love this. It's a great feeling. Um, Well, first of all, when something good happens, and this is just a somatic thing to bring it back in, there there are tools that we have that are somatic, and there are tools that we have that are more mental-based, but when good stuff happens, I love to do what I call, and this is a very technical term, a (laughs) woot-woot-wiggle-wiggle, and it goes a little bit like this. Let's do it together. So woot-woot-wiggle-wiggle. I love that. that. (laughs) Yeah, and that's also telling our brain and body that like we're in rest and digest. We're in what I call nervous system neutral. We can create. We're in safety. Like the woot woot wiggle wiggle is a really important tool (laughs) neurologically, but also it's fun. Um, Yeah, so this whole idea of like demystifying excellence, I think, is really important because. A, we're talking about accessibility, we're talking about meeting people where they are in terms of trauma, in terms of neurodivergence, in terms of all of this stuff, it's just like, it's okay for you to be you, you have permission to be yourself. And with that, you bring an absolute, unique, incredible aspect to the world that we didn't have before. And if we can unblock that and let that shine, you know, we can have a conversation around musical excellence and what that means and sort of benchmarking that without it being a value judgment. And so then we have specific things to work on and a way to talk about it without it being like, oh, but also you're a piece of crap that has no value. No, that does not pass anymore. And so, you know, part of this is like, what tools can we have and use to support the way that we wanna teach and the information that we have to communicate in a way that the person in front of us whether it's ourselves or somebody else can take that productively and build that into how they feel about themselves how they think about themselves and how they you know set their intentions and have the, the skills and the tools to really go for them.
0: I'm interested by um because I, I have a couple of friends who also who have who have ADHD who, who are musicians and we've spoken a little bit about some of the difficulties that sometimes they experience so I'm Curious to ask you, what do you think um, needs to change or needs to be added to music education so that it can hold space and be able to support people who are neurodivergent?
1: Awesome question. Thank you for asking it. It's an important conversation to be had. Two things to note are that that's not really my area of expertise in the sense that I am not a doctor Mm. and I'm not a doctor. Um, I have feelings and experience and have been having conversations about this. So I'm happy to answer from that aspect, but just, you know, I qualify my... Yes, important thing to do. So for me, the way that it shows up is that I have a lot of trouble staying on task. And I need, if I want to be focused about something, I need to be constantly creating in that thing, like new stuff all the time, which means that when I'm in rehearsal, um, or when I'm practicing, it needs to be as fun and as different and as stimulating as possible for me to be able to stay in it. So it's not like getting into a position and being like, okay, I can stay here, I can stay here, I can stay here. Hmm. But it's like, okay, I'm here now. Let's do all the cool things. Wow, what is happening? Ah!" You know, and it's really like, this is visually annoying on the screen. This is what's happening in my head. (laughs) So (laughs) learning to deal with that and like make sense of it is a challenge. But what a beautiful challenge. And so for me to answer the fundamental question of how to make um, music education more accessible to neurodivergent people, I think the question is more fundamental about how to make music education better in general, because we're talking about, you know, like what makes you you? Well, people who are neurotypical have feelings as well and have needs as well. And they're not that different, just the way that they're expressed is different. And so, you know, again, coming back to this idea of having a flexible framework that sometimes we practice in this way, sometimes we practice in that way, but that we can stay engaged in, a, in you know, I loved the, you said co-creating earlier, like we're co-creating the future of that person, whether it's ourselves or it's somebody else. And so I think that some concrete things that people can do and schools can do are to A, acknowledge that everybody's different and not have a, you're normal, you're not normal, and yay, this is the difference.
0: Yeah, there's often this this like, oh, I know how to interact with this person, so I'm gonna give them more time. And this one, I I don't quite understand how they are working, so Mm -hmm. like,
1: yeah, next, you're not gonna fit. And it makes us confront as teachers it makes us confront our shadow aspects or our aspects that we don't know as well or that we haven't mastered. Often, you know, neurodivergent people are asking different kinds of questions that a lot of neurotypical people haven't thought about before. And so, the I don't know, let me think about it. Let's discover this together is a huge tool instead of just like, well, that's a stupid question, work on your intonation. You know which does which does what? What objectively? What does that do? Well, it tells the person that they have no value and the therapy's crap. It tells them that they should be doing something that they don't know how to do, and that they're not going to get help from their primary resource.
0: And that's not going to encourage anybody.
1: <laughs> no, and it discourages the teacher as well. Yeah. Whereas you know, like there's the in the American Viola Society Journal that's coming out have an article about. A lesson format that I propose and it's just it's really simple there's the self-regulation at the beginning like making sure that both parties are ready to have a learning exchange then there's the performance which is the full shebang of throwing spaghetti of like the centering the whatever because the lesson is that tiny dose of stress and you know, people flip out for lessons and to use it constructively rather than just like, oh, we'll chill out. It's not even, not even a performance is not helpful. We need to use that in a way that builds the performance and builds those skills. So then there's the performance and then there's the evaluation where the teacher and the student evaluate the performance together. And so the teacher is teaching the student how to think about it. Then there's, you know, the identification of stuff that isn't great. Right. Stuff to improve as well as the things that are going well. Then there's the learning, the learning, where the teacher's demonstrating and talking through things and showing and and explaining. And then there's figuring out what to do for the next meeting. So the teacher's like, okay, well, this is exactly what happened. (laughs) I said exactly these things. The student has basically a prescription of what to do. Everybody's empowered. We're repeating ourselves way less. The student, you know, if there's somebody who needs routine, like here's a concrete way to do this. You just, you know, that you're going to go in, you have a responsibility to be regulated for that space. You know, you're going to have a performance, you know, you're going to have learning and you know, that you're going to walk out with what you need to do for the next lesson. And then also what's cool about that is that for students at the end of the year, they have a notebook with 30 or 35
0: pages of, concrete learning it takes away I think there can be like a certain belief and I think it happens in action as well that like oh I can never find back what I did in my lesson like I can never put I when I'm practicing on my own I can never find back the sound that I made in my lesson and this is like a way of deconstructing what happens in a lesson and why was it that you were able to get to that sound to that freedom to that way of playing that made you feel good that made your teacher feel good and okay what are the steps to find it back again i think that recording lessons is really important 100 percent,
1: which is an element of accountability that some teachers of aging generations are not comfortable with having i think that needs to change And also we need to be really clear about boundaries and stuff like that. The idea is not that people feel more restricted, but they feel freer, but they have a framework to be able to express that instead of resorting to cliches and, you know, closed thinking that gets people in trouble. (laughs) You know, and that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) But, you know, when we have a framework and we can say, look, like, you know, I want our relationship to exist in this space and I want to learn the most that I can from you as a student and then as a teacher. I want to give you the most that, you know, I want to see you develop your skills and become the player that I'm sure that you can be and the person that I'm sure that you can be. All of a sudden you have a framework for that that's productive and also keeps people out of grey zones that are potentially harmful.
0: Yeah, and again, taking away this mystery, this, this oh, uh, I'm not, how did I get that? How did they do it? How did and taking mystery away a bit from from the teacher, I guess, of like, oh, well, they just have the magic touch. No, they're they're saying things to you that are helping you to get to this point. But sometimes when you go back to to your practice room when you're on your own, you don't have that same framework again, so it's harder to get back. Yeah. Well,
1: and also it's nice to know, like, you can sort of have a snapshot of where you are. At any given time, you know, for example, in in the three zones of excellence—mental, musical, mechanical—I'm very musical. Mechanical, I can hold, you know, I can hold my own. It's fine, and the mental skills, I really have to work on those. Mm. You know, where some people are have a different combination. Yeah, and that's totally fine. But again, it's it's not about categorizing people and saying you're going to be okay because technically you're amazing. The rest doesn't matter. Yeah. It's like, okay, you tend to be really strong technically. Let's make sure that we're integrating strategies into our practice sessions that boost that musicality. How do we boost these other areas? And, you know, Spark Practice is really designed so that you make a tiny increment, uh, incremental gain somewhere and it ha- it ripples through everything else. Because, again, that decryption, that demystifying, that de- screwing up everybody <laughs> like, you know and I can understand that in classical music it functions on this like really closed tight-knit elite system and I've been really lucky to be able to meet a lot of these people and exchange with a lot of people on really really the the top end and you know kind of everywhere through because I've had to go you know I learned to play three times I learned the first time I learned after a five-year break, and then I learned after I got attacked on the street and they broke my hand. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I had to, you know, that's why I'm a ninja practicing. It's like, (laughs) you got to figure it out at some point. But, you know, I've been really lucky. And everybody, regardless of where they are, sort of in in the echelons of international soloist to half-passionate amateur, has their own stuff. But they also have the stuff that makes them shine. And so it's like pull it, you know. It's another thing about Dorothy Delay, this violin goddess, whatever, was that she was really not well known for finding the good. You know, so somebody plays and she'll be like, "Oh my gosh, this was great!" And then figured out a way to put all the other things that needed a little help into pulling that forward. You know, so you're constantly encouraging the best
0: out of that person and not putting their value on the line about it. I always think that the things that you do well they are your tool to help you with the things that you need to improve. But there's a kind of belief or I see confusion in people's faces sometimes when I'm when I'm talking about this mostly students that like about how but i need to improve and it's like yeah but just just because you're using what you're good at doesn't mean that you're not going to improve <laughs> um and it's it's i think it's sometimes quite um it seems contradictory but actually it's it's not it's it's using what you're good at to to keep keep improving without thinking that you suck
1: yes totally totally okay so this is like like neon signs going off about intention and feeling. So when we're good at something, like I remember the first time in rowing that I had like a perfect stroke, I, I remember it. It was at like 6.03 in the morning on, you know, I know exactly the patch of of course, like I know it, exactly where I was in the lake, I, I know. And that feeling, when you when you get something right, it just is like, oh my God, that was it. And then you spend a year trying to do it again. (laughs) But you have the feeling. And so then there's that emotional signature that starts to imprint of like, not only did things come together, but it felt like everything resonated, yes. And you can do... You can get something right and it feel like a no, but the goal is to get something right and have it feel like a yes so that then you can start to trust yourself. And so then a lot of what I do in my practice as a person, but also musically is like, okay, how do I want to feel? So like New Year's resolutions, I don't do New Year's resolutions. I do New Year's intentions and my intentions are, I want to feel like X, Y, Z this year because I can't, I don't know what's coming up. I don't know what's going to happen. And if I try to force it to happen, it'll be fake but if i can say i want to feel like this then the solutions come and the opportunities come and and all of that and i think the same is true when we're practicing or performing that we can say like okay i want to feel relaxed and open and you know confident okay but what is confidence i want to feel like i can trust myself to create i want to feel creative i want to feel like i can soar over this top note and then like go down and we're going to go, you know, in the story that I'm telling, there's this like cave of desolation. We're going to go spend some time there and then we're going to go up to this happy party, you know, whatever it is. But you have that emotional space to be free and safe to create so that then you are pulling the things that are good. And you're saying, you know, that feeling, let's find that feeling in this other
0: area. This leads, I think, quite nicely onto, because you've mentioned a couple of times about like nervous system regulation, emotional regulation. Could you could you give a firstly a little bit of um, maybe a definition for people who don't know about what it is? And then um, maybe to say a bit about why it's so important for, for performers.
1: Yes, thank you. So nervous system regulation is really just when we're not in an activated state of fight or flight, freeze or fawn, we're in that rest and digest neutrality. It doesn't mean that we're asleep. It doesn't mean that we're running around. It's just really when you're kind of at home in yourself. And so everybody is different. And we know anecdotally that everybody's different. And so I was really interested in finding ways to express that but also to give some tools about like we're different in these ways and we can work with that in these ways. So uh, nervous system neutral came out of this because we need those mental skills for performance. We also need them in our relationships and professional lives outside of being on stage. And so I wanted to develop uh, an essential toolkit of coming back to nervous system neutral, coming back to that like Cool, chill, centered space from which you can rest, digest, be creative, feel really safe. Nervous system regulation essentially is about feeling safe and feeling safe in yourself. For everybody, that means something else. If you've had trauma, if you've had stuff like that, that safety looks really different than for somebody who hasn't. And so that's a whole other ball of wax that, you know. You need to feel safe enough to start having that conversation with yourself. And everybody is where they are. It's fine. It's okay to be a person. Congratulations. (laughs) So what nervous system neutral is about is um, the protocol, the basic protocol is notice, support, and nurture. So what we're going to do is we're going to notice when we're activated about something or we have big feelings or something's off or whatever. We're just going to notice what's going on. And for everybody that looks different you know everybody experiences stress differently we're going to support we're going to use our strategies to be able to come back to neutral whether it's like a mini feeling or about to go on stage and all of a sudden you're like shaking and throwing up and you know we've been there um or you know completely uh catastrophizing this is awful everybody hates me i probably smell bad whatever and using those strategies like urgent care and also our digestive system of stress to support that to come back to neutral to come back to safety and then nurture is to give ourselves that positive direction to get the energy flowing again and move forward so because everybody's different i built a quiz around this and there are eight different animals and really the secret sauce is about whether you experience stress in the body or the mind first and if your core reaction, not a response, not something we've conditioned, but the thing that happens first on the very inside of you is fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. So fight, ugh, flight, freeze, or fawn is, is sort of friend. It's like,
0: oh, everything's fine, everything's great, you're so pretty, let me touch your hair. I was aware of fight, fight flight, freeze for a long time, but I only found out about Fawn like I think about a month or two ago. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I think it's a really interesting, very much less talked about fourth part of this stress of stress reaction.
1: Yeah. Well, what I think is cool about it is that, you know, because everybody experiences
0: stress differently,
1: not all of the solutions that work for somebody are gonna work for somebody else. And so when somebody's like, oh well, you know, just drink a glass of cold water and imagine a tree that's going to work perfectly for somebody but that's going to be completely useless for somebody else who's sitting there like well it doesn't stop me shaking so what i wanted to do was a give people the permission to be themselves in this other way and then start a conversation about how can we work with these differences and to get to know ourselves better, but also start to understand like, okay, well, this means that my tendencies might be like this in sort of the, the shadow side of not our best, whatever. <laughs> and then some of the expressions of like, oh, but when I am centered and feeling safe and feeling creative, these, these are some of the things that I excel at naturally. Then there's the whole like stress antidote, because, you know when we're talking about performance preparation, we're talking about like um, you know when you run up and stair- up and down stairs and oh gosh, what is it called? Uh, I don't remember right now. but you make things harder than they are so that then you like push the system a little bit to be able to come back. Exposure to stress is super important, but doing that in a safe way is even more important. And especially when you expose yourself to stress like that, The whole point of that is to practice giving yourself the antidote. Because if you just expose yourself to stress and put yourself on stage in that stressed condition without giving yourself the antidote and practicing that,
0: it's damaging. And that also becomes learned as well. Exactly. You're breaking, you're not building. Again, I think this building element of this exposing yourself to stress and supporting yourself with the antidote is is not focused on enough and I think people just think oh yeah you just have to keep doing it you just have to you know after x amount of performances or after you've done it for however many years oh you'll learn how to do it and it's like well maybe you will but maybe there are some people who you will but you will learn how to either suffer through it or
1: you know and you develop coping mechanisms Mm. which aren't coping strategies exactly that just kind of you know, because there isn't that why, there isn't that intention, there isn't that, I do have agency to care about myself. And so, okay, so (laughs) another system. Oh my God. (laughs) It's like we're talking to Sarah Black. Um, So when we're preparing for a performance, we have five major phases, right? There's preparation, like getting your fingerings together. um, For us, Boeing's um, doing the sort of ID work, uh, investigative journalism in the part, like pulling out what are all the... Dynamic markings, what are all the tempo markings? What are all the um, adjectives and other words going on? So all this is prep. Okay. Then there's the loading phase, and we're we're stealing directly from lead sports right now. You know, and I've had the chance to work with national team coaches and people like that, and you're you're really just like the mental charge of what you're doing is taken off because we're in these frameworks and we have this accompaniment, you know, up to 80% of the time, between 60 and 80% of the time. Imagine. You had an elite coach helping you practice on average 70% of the time, changes the world. So, I'm trying to do that, but at a distance. <laughs> so, we have our prep phase, then we have loading. And this is really physically uh, engaging and a little bit less mentally charged, but the mental element is still in there as well. And that's just getting everything in the hands, making sure that we can get from point A to point B without totally breaking down, just learning the material, right? And then the second of two incredibly important phases that nobody talks about. But the the next phase in the chain, so preparation, loading, conversion. And this is conversion to competition, right? So we're going from knowing the material to being able to have it come across the way we want to on stage, right? There's this middle ground called conversion. And what the magic sauce of that is, we're exposing ourselves to little doses of stress and practicing our antidote and increasing levels every time. And this is where lessons come in uh, with that performance element. This is where mock auditions come in with Audition Club. We have Audition Club, which you know we'll put in resources and trip. But um, this is where you're playing for people who scare you. This is where you're doing that adversity training, which is that sort of running up and down stairs and all of that and making things harder. Um, but you're increasing this over time so that your body and your mind can integrate all of the information and catch up and the skills that you're practicing for performance, the mental skills in your digestive system of stress become strong. So that mental pillar or mental zone of excellence, whatever, is getting stronger and it's built into everything else that we're doing, right? And then we have the competition phase which is the actual throwing of spaghetti when it counts right and then the second most important phase that we don't talk about is recovery yeah that crash after yeah i know right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it needs to be it needs to be in the plan from the beginning you know so the conversion and the recovery need to be in the plan from the beginning because that crash that comes after we've done something important doesn't mean that we suck or doesn't mean that we're losing anything or it doesn't mean any of that it's the natural cycle of things and we need that to be able to really take the time to integrate everything that happened and help you know rest ourselves so that our again we're learning to do this in a more aligned way that works with our neurobiology that works with our mind with that works with our unique profile of who we are so that we're stalking things in a way that's helpful and healthy and helps us like come back you know a little bit
0: further down the path. I think that's such an important point the working with ourselves but it also means having to look at yourself and that can be really confronting sometimes and it means we have to look at things that might be uncomfortable and challenging to, to look at but in order to be able to work with ourselves we also have to see ourselves and see ourselves for who we are what we are doing and what makes us tick what makes us get really pissed off you're so right but not everybody needs to do everything right now yeah i remember hearing once this you can do everything all at, you can do everything just not all at the same time
1: right and i don't want people to feel like they're never going to be great because they're afraid of, because they don't have the tools right now to face all this stuff, you know, or they're not ready or whatever, I, you know, there's stuff that I'm not ready to face. I, we're all on our own path, right? And so it's super important to know that like, regardless of where you are, regardless of how blocked you feel or how free you feel or how surprising all of this stuff is or how much you have resistance to, to even looking at it, there is a framework to be able to have a productive conversation without touching all of that stuff. And then as you get
0: more comfortable and you start to trust yourself more, it comes. Totally. I can't believe how quickly these, this hour or so goes by. It surprises me every time. So I want to ask you, just as a final question, um, what would you what would your advice be to someone who is looking for their authentic artistry?
1: enjoy the ride because again, you know, everybody's different. If you want tools, everybody, there's so many people who are offering tools to help even start that process, you know, and, and I have a bunch cause that's how I function in the world, you know, so please come and hang out with me if you want to, but you know, learning is the process of being crap at something to being less crap at it. And so <laughs> there's this like beautiful discomfort, And I feel like real authentic artistry is enjoying that beautiful discomfort and having the courage to have that conversation. So please enjoy the ride. Enjoy that discomfort. Come hang out with cool kids. We're all weirdos and you are too. And that's totally fine. (laughs) Do
0: you want to let people know where they can find you, where they can work with you, find out more about you? Yes. Well, it would be awesome to meet everybody who uh,
1: hangs out with this conversation and, and is interested Uh, you can find me at spark practice everywhere. So Instagram, Facebook, there's the website. It's sparkpractice.com, S-P-A-R-K practice.com. And maybe um, we can put in that better lessons now worksheet uh, for people who want to download it as part of the podcast. And that's the the framework of the conversation that you have with your lessons. You can also use this for yourself, for your own uh, practice. The best way to come and hang out and see if this is your vibe, there are a couple different things you can do. First of all, get your personal stress profile
0: from... It's super interesting and really quite accurate.
1: <laughs> yeah, everybody's different. And the data is super fascinating. It's been online for like three days now. And the, the distribution between the profiles is pretty equal. So there's that. And then Monday, there's the mindful morning in the practice room. So come join the Facebook group and like come hang out. And I take you through half an hour of just you know setting up your week in a in a chill way mondays in english and thursdays in french so
0: come on down fantastic sarah thank you so much it's been wonderful to to chat with you today
1: thank you so much Kate. this is so great i love what you do i love that you're bringing this conversation to the public and it's changing lives and i'm i'm so happy for you and proud of you
0: Sarah is such a rare sunshine she has a sparkling personality so no wonder her business is called Spark Practice. This woman has so much knowledge and she makes it so accessible and doesn't overcomplicate it at all. There are many ways that you can work with her so go and check her out on Instagram or have a scroll of her website which is full of great information. That is it for today join us next week for the following installment of the Authentic Artistry podcast. Bye!